Hi, everyone. This is Anthony Diaz with the Pop Health Show. And the show is for anyone that has a in this world. I'm really excited and enthused today to have Dr. Joe Geske on the show. Uh, Dr. Geske is the Vice President of Medical Affairs at Ohio Health. He's got a very interesting story, interesting background, strong passion for health, but I'm not going to steal a slender. Joe, welcome to the show. Thank you, Anthony. It's a pleasure to be invited on your show and to be able to share my stories regarding healthcare and in particular population health. Absolutely. Absolutely, Joe. Um, no, it's it's great. It's great to have you on. It's great for you to peel off time, Dr. Geske, to, to be here. And I, I guess along those lines, I know you have a really interesting story on how you started off. Tell me that story. Tell me a little bit what led you to become the person you are and started your passion for, for, for health at the beginning. Sure, Anthony. I, I would think I had an epiphanic moment. I had already been a physician uh, at a major academic center uh, on the East Coast for many, many years. And I happened to see my dad get sick with head and neck cancer. And he came and lived with my wife and I while he was getting care at the academic center where I was working. And one day uh, he had to be hospitalized because of having fever, having difficulty uh, maintaining his nutritional status. And one part of our hospital that I did not work in was the hematology oncology wing or the cancer wing. And I came in without my white jacket on in civilian clothes. And I think everyone who works in healthcare knows the status of someone wearing a white coat and a badge, it pretty much gives you carte blanche to go anywhere. And so at that point, I felt like I was everyone else uh, who was a loved one visiting uh, their significant other uh, in the hospital. And he was getting discharged from the hospital. And I happened to witness the exchange of his discharge instructions from, from his nurse. And as I saw him there, I saw my dad no longer, you know, the hero uh, and the invincible uh, individual we all grow up with, with our, with our parents, and saw him as an elderly man um, who was battling a life or death uh, illness and was shrunken, not only in stature physically, mm -hmm. uh, but to see a once strong, proud man um, be that ill uh, it really gave me a profound sense of empathy. And when they reviewed his discharge instructions, there were so many errors there. Uh, in particular, uh, he was being discharged on a long-acting narcotic that was five times the dose that he was regularly taking. And then there were multiple errors in antibiotics with different routes of administration, uh, different anti-nausea meds. And when they asked him if he had any questions, much like it's played out in every single day on our hospital beds across the United States, his, his answer was no. And I happened to save this discharge summary from 2007, and I got my dad's permission to share it. And it's actually published, and you could look it up uh, online uh, to see the uh, uh, quality of the discharge instructions. Here was an individual who, if he was adherent, uh, he very uh, likely could have uh, expired from a uh, medical error. And when, and fortunately, my dad is still doing uh, well. 
and has gotten otherwise phenomenal medical care at the same place where, where this occurred. And I asked my dad, I said, Dad, you know, I tried to get away with things when I was a high school and college student, uh, and you were so perceptive that you were able to pick up when I was trying to pull your leg or pull a fast one over on you. How come you didn't notice these, you know, egregious errors? He said, Joe, he said, at that point, he said, it was barely enough for me to understand my name and my birth date. I could not think. Um, I still felt like I was disassociated from, from my body. And I just did not have the wherewithal to be able to critically think to self-manage my illness. And, and that was a profound epiphanic moment that just serendipitously at the time I was learning about teach back, which is the concept where if you hear some new information, you try to explain it to a patient and their family and see if they can repeat it back to you. And at the time I was told about 50% of the time that people couldn't recall that. So I said, let me try that in my clinical practice. And lo and behold, for the next week after anything I taught to families, I would ask them to teach back something that I had just had told them. And lo and behold, it wasn't quite 50%, but it was about 40% of the time I had to repeat what I had just said. Oh, wow. And I felt at that time, no matter how good of a doctor I thought I was, how well up to date with the literature I was, uh, having students and residents and fellows and training challenging me to stay up to date on all the medical advances, I realized that I was nowhere near as a good a physician as I could have been just because I realized that the stuff that I was saying to my patients, most of the time people would not be able to uh, adhere to because I was significantly overestimating their ability to understand what I was saying and to be, ex be able to execute on, on their plan. And that changed my life. Oh, wow. Wow. Well, so a couple things, Joe. I, I really appreciate um, you telling what you went through in this area and, you know, to bridge, uh, you know, through your story also some of the problems and some of what you're were solving and, and, and kind of what led you to become the person you are today. So really, really appreciate this, Joe. Um, along those lines, I'd love to hear a little bit more deeper on some of the things you're talking about and also hear about some of your passions for health. There's a, there's a lot going on in health, you know, yeah. today. Tell me a little bit about what, what you're fixated on or, or what has your, your captivation, I should say, in, in health. Uh, just love sure. to listen to that. Yeah, great question, Anthony. Very, very insightful. You know, my biggest, uh, passion after that experience with my father that changed my career was just understanding the social uh, determinants of health and basically the environment that people work, play, and, and live in. And coming across data that suggests that an individual's preventable mortality is only related to medicine, about 20% of the care. And yet, most of our knowledge uh, in coverage around medicine and, and, and popular health is around these great new scientific medical advances, whether it be technology, whether it be drug discovery, uh, whether it be uh, personalized genomics. And we're only focusing in about 20% of the pie. And when you look at people's behaviors, when you look at their genetics, when you look at their environment, those have a huge contribution to an individual's health. 
And my dad's experience really led me to a light on health literacy, the ability to process and understand healthcare information so that people can act effectively on that information. And the Institute of Medicine and other professional societies have highlighted the fact that tens of millions of Americans have limited health literacy. And the scientific data has suggested that people who have limited health literacy go to the emergency department more often. They do not get as much preventative care as other individuals. They have difficulty interpreting health messages. And then finally is they actually have an increased risk of mortality. Now, if you and I went to a physician's office and they did not examine our heart or our lungs, we would think we were getting a suboptimal exam because we know lung problems and heart problems could potentially have a negative impact on your health. So I want to ask you and your audience, how many times do people focus on their literacy, something that is known to potentially impact their health and their life and the outcomes? And the, and the honest answer is, the audiences that I've spoken across the country is it's very, very rare for organizations to be able to first diagnose this and then second, find a way to operationalize programs to help address literacy levels. And that has been my passion for uh, the past several years and what I've been working on personally and within my healthcare uh, system to address. It's, it's fascinating, Joe, and I'd love to hear a little bit about some of these programs. Um, and and I, I never really thought about it in this dimension, but yeah, tell me a little bit on, you know, kind of day in the life or, you know, literacy, improving on this literacy function in action. Sure. So one of the things uh, that we do in our hospital is we screen patients who come into the hospital that have uh, congestive heart failure or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. And we use a validated test to assess their, their literacy level. And what we're finding is, and it only takes about three minutes to do, and we're finding about 40% of our patient population um, has limited literacy. Now, there are several reasons for that. One could be the fact that they're sick. We do know, too, as we age, our ex execution function, our executive function, is not quite as robust as it was when we were younger. And then finally is your level of education. Um, people who have lower formal education really can potentially struggle with some of the complexities of, of health information. And despite recommendations that information be communicated in a fifth grade level, people variously overestimate people's ability to understand. And we all realize that we learn in different fashions. Some of us are visual learners. Some of us learn better hearing stuff. Others are kinesthetic learners doing things with their hands. And our education system, if you will, in our hospitals and our clinics don't really rely on those unique features of individuals, how patients learn. It's typically a handout or a brief audio uh, description of a new medicine, a new healthcare condition, uh, a new health plan to keep you out of the hospital and keep you well. And it's only for a minute or two uh, at a time. And as a result, our patients are very frustrated. They end up not being able to be successful. And then we use perhaps the most pejorative term 
uh, that one could use in healthcare, and that's the term noncompliance. Anytime you use the word noncompliance, it's essentially you're giving up on any creative, innovative idea that you could potentially use to help overcome a problem that really might not be of the patient's making. It actually may be on more of the provider and the health system not meeting the individual patient's needs because of limited literacy. And because of that, what we've done is in our hospital, if patients have limited health literacy, if they meet the uh, Medicare homebound criteria, uh, uh, statute, which means they're essentially homebound except for being able to go to doctor's offices or things like that, we will bring our home health care agency in and myself and a licensed practical nurse will spend one hour a week for four weeks in the patient's home, uh, essentially teaching them about their illness, their medications, and how to self-manage. And we're currently under an IRB study in our organization, but I could tell you over the 100 plus patients that we've seen, we're seeing a 40% relative reduction uh, in readmission rates and increased engagement scores in that population of people wow. who otherwise were, were considered non-compliant and non-adherent. And I could tell you, Anthony, um, that is a term that should be sparingly, if ever used, because really what it is, is we just not have found the right uh, mechanisms to be able to reach some of those patients who are struggling with uh, some of the challenging social determinants of health. Wow! No, this is a, a powerful perspective, and uh, yeah, I really, uh, I really appreciate. Um, yeah, I, I wasn't really aware about um, you know this space in this in this way, and the non-compliance piece. Yeah, you hear that come up a lot, and it's it's important to know that's that's definitely. Um, you know, a, a, almost like a post-mortem or a post-mortem should be done there to really understand, you know, what's going on. Um, I guess, you know, Joe, what I'd love to hear a little bit uh, more about is, you know, maybe tell me a little bit about some of some of these other programs that you're doing. And also, I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you think about health in the future. You know, where are we going from a, from a, from a health innovation perspective? What are some of the you know, tell me the future of health according to Joe. <laughs> uh, ab absolutely. Again, very, very uh, insightful question. You know, I, I think the other thing that we're doing is we're forming community partnerships. I think medicine is no longer the heroic uh, man or woman um, going to a, a scene of an illness and working his or her uh, therapeutic magic and curing people. Um, and, and both parties riding off into the sunset feeling, feeling better. It's really managing an aging population with chronic disease. And to that, uh, to paraphrase uh, Hillary, you know, Hillary Clinton, it, it does take a village in that there is such a role for everyone on the healthcare team to contribute to everyone's well-being, not only nursing staff, not only case managers, ther uh, therapists, community health workers, health coaches, uh, these are the individuals who, if you can leverage their talents, their relationship ability, their ability to uh, connect with patients uh, and allow them to practice at the scope of their license and work almost as a general manager, if you will, of a sports team to put the right pieces, the right processes in place, you can have a tremendous uh, outcome. And, and that's where I believe healthcare. Uh, is going. We, we know that we spend more than other countries 
with less results compared to other countries. I think the big factor in that is other countries spend two times more on social services uh, than we do in the United States. We're more focused on uh, technologic uh, innovations and perhaps uh, uh, some biological uh, innovations. And those are important. But I think if you're really looking to manage populations of people with uh, challenging socioeconomic uh, conditions, you really need to be able to impact their health comprehensively and be able to address things like health literacy, food insecurity, transportation uh, difficulties, lack of support. And the great news is there are so many people in the community uh, that can assist you in forming those partnerships um, shows the benefit uh, of, of their talents and skills. And it has a benefit, too, to your bottom line as a healthcare institution because you may not necessarily uh, be paying for that. And so what we're doing, for example, another innovation that we're doing is we're partnering with a local uh, emergency medical services company uh, in our area. And if patients consent after they're discharged from the hospital, from the zip code where the EMS provides services, they will go out and essentially do a home visit. And they will help uh, do med reconciliation. Uh, they will ensure that they have transportation to their doctor's office. Uh, if they, they will do uh, a safety uh, inspection uh, of their home, they will do uh, other evaluative measures uh, in the home uh, to help bridge any gaps that they may have had before they went into the hospital. And they're empowered with uh, their primary care physician and the discharging physician from our hospital to contact them if they need any any benefits. And what we're finding, and this paper is currently under uh, peer review at, at a journal, but what we found was people who partake in this program um, had a lower rate of returning to the emergency department, had a lower 30-day rate of coming into the hospital. And one of the things that has been frustrating for healthcare organizations is that sometimes these initiatives aren't very well reimbursed and they're worried about uh, cutting off potential revenue or the expense of trying to improve quality. And what we found is the patients that actually don't come back into the hospital save the organization money because you're typically impacting patients who are Medicaid or dual eligible insurance individuals who if they would have come into the hospital, you would have lost money because the reimbursement is lower than your cost structure uh, in the hospital. So it's actually demonstrating that quality does have a financial uh, ROI by uh, addressing uh, some of these chronic disease patients and people who may have governmental uh, insurance sources. And I think that's where programs like these can be potentially uh, effective is how do we use community resources uh, to be able to manage chronic disease in an aging population who may have low formal education, lack of social support, and who may uh, otherwise uh, be struggling. And I think that there is the greatest untapped resource in all of healthcare discussion is it's not the technology, it's not the medicine, it's how can we empower patients to help them help us deliver more effective care. And I believe where the future of medicine is, how do we get those patients 
to be, uh, in fact, part of the healthcare team, if you will, even though that they're, they themselves are the patients. I believe we have not tapped people's innate abilities and people's uh, willingness and desire uh, to get better. It's just when we start talking about data, we start looking at data that is uh, data that's relevant to us. But if you start asking a patient and say, look, if you feel better, that you can go to your grandson's baseball game or you can go out and uh, go shopping uh, with a loved one. How much time will you spend with me learning about how to self-manage your disease? Now it's very tangible for them. They either can or can't do the activity that they wanted to do before they got sick. And we simply break down the barriers of what their goals are. So we know we're successful when they're able to do the things in their daily life that their illness has previously prevented them from, from accomplishing. And that has made all the difference. We worry about the, the data, like um, how well they're breathing, um, how well their uh, heart function is. But we know that we're not successful until that they can accomplish their subjective goals. So you're tying the objective data in with what's relevant to the patient. And that makes it more tangible for them, makes it more likely that they'll be motivated uh, to be able to uh, do some very complex interventions. Uh, yeah, Joe, I, I I love it. And this is, uh, yeah, I appreciate the, the breadth and scope of what you're mentioning here. It's extremely, you know, so timely, you know, as you've probably heard, uh, you know, other episodes and other guests, you know, social determinants thing. But having this level of empathy needed from a, a care perspective to support, you know, these needs and and, and working, doing, Ching, super great to hear um, uh, what, what you're doing in this space and also the way that you think of healthcare. I totally agree with your vision and where we're going and I think we'll get there. And obviously I'm sure you feel this way as well. Like it's somewhat of a balance of patience but also there is a really good groundswell going by, by focusing. It's that I've never heard of that service that you were mentioning. Um, I've heard about those concepts, but I'm very interested to, to learn more. I'd love for you to maybe send us more information about that, ser that service you're using because, you know, everything, as you're saying, you know, can't be solved with technology. Every, you know, there's a yeah. unique blend of, of, you know, hands-on in-person approach that's needed. Uh, but technology can enable a lot, but it's about what pieces, you know, in this process um, it, it enables. And uh, I guess, uh, Dr. Geske, I question for you, I promise, because uh, I want to be sensitive to your time. And this is great sure. having you on. Um, in terms of um, contact, uh, our listeners on social media are contacting you directly. If, if our listeners would like to get a hold of you, what would be a great way to connect with you on social media or directly? Sure. So I'm on uh, uh, LinkedIn um, I, and I'm also on, on, on Facebook. I don't have a, a Twitter account or my personal email. If you use uh, Joseph, J-O-S-E-P-H, dot jesky g-e-s-k-e-y at ohiohealth.com i'll be able to respond or my personal email is j g-e-s-k-e-y at verizon.net and uh i uh would welcome any feedback or any questions that your listeners uh may have 
Great, great. Well, uh, no, much appreciated. Um, so, so a few things. It was great having you on to share your story. I really appreciate, you know, obviously from a point of pain, point of opportunity, uh, you turn that into an opportunity to, you know, take a stand for something that you saw that needed to be corrected. You know, you're scaling that pain, you know, you've converted that pain uh, at that point in time to something pretty profound and, you, and you've impacted a lot of lives and are doing so. And it's great to see the work you're doing and how it's paving the future. So just wanted to say thank you so much for your time. And, and this was great having you on. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Anthony. And thank you for um, taking your time and your resources to be able to spread this message and to be able to connect other like-minded uh, individuals. So I wish you uh, personally and your show uh, all the best, and hopefully it'll reach uh, in the top 10 for uh, for downloads on the App Store. Much appreciated, much appreciated. <laughs> no, kind kind words and, and, and very inspiring, and uh, ho hopefully, you know, we get there and, and, and just really appreciate the support. And this was, uh, this was great, Dr. Geske. Thank you so much. Thank you, Anthony. It was a pleasure. Thank you. All right, bye.